Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. In today's episode, we speak to world famous author Matt Fitzgerald. Matt is a prolific writer and he has written on a diverse set of subjects related to sports, from famous races to diets to training and coaching. In addition, Matt is a competitive runner and triathlete himself and his training plans have been used by over 60,000 athletes. This is part 1 of the discussion which covers diet principles that Matt talked about in his book called The Endurance Diet. What formed the basis of those principles? Why it should work for everyday people? Then we move on a bit about supplementation. Then we also talk about some of the developments post the publication of the book four years back that Matt wants to highlight. In the next part, we talk about the eighty twenty training principles, which is the concept that bulk of your training in whatever sport or whatever physical activity you are doing has to be done at a very low intensity. To details of how you should measure the intensity and how you should structure the twenty percent. How what what does he mean by high intensity? How high are these intensities and other aspects? Of course, we have the fun quiz segment as well as uh, Matt's recommendations on resources that all of us can use. Welcome to the show, Matt. It's great to be with you. Let me uh, let me just uh, begin by talking about endurance diet. Uh, can you just take us through what kindled your curiosity in this preparing for this endurance diet, and how did you go about researching the theme? Sure, I, I think every every runner knows every endurance athlete that diet is very important. It makes uh, a, a major contribution to health, fitness, and performance. Um, you know, in addition to being a coach and a certified sports nutritionist, I'm an athlete myself. So you know, I I pay a lot of attention to nutrition. And my general philosophical orientation toward um, fitness and performance has been to study and emulate best practices at the elite level. Um, you know science is helpful but i think a lot of athletes put too much in science and not enough on real world best practices um and um my my book 8020 running is about how the best endurance athletes in the world actually train and i make an argument in that book that um mere mortals you know everyday athletes like us uh should train the same way the professionals do we just need to sort of scale things down to our level and i believe that the same principle applies to diet uh, as well um so in the endurance diet i just um i traveled all around the world and also um created a questionnaire that i sent out because i couldn't go everywhere so i created a questionnaire that i sent out to endurance athletes all over the world elite endurance athletes To try to identify uh, consistent patterns in the way they eat, um, so that I could um, distill best practices and share them. And these were uh, athletes from multiple sports, yes, right? Not just running, but triathlon, bicycling, uh, swimming, rowing, cross-country skiing—the the whole family of endurance sports. Yep. And do you remember roughly how many responses you got, uh, both through the questionnaire as well as your own direct interactions? You know, it, it wasn't a gigantic number. It was several dozen. Um, there, were, there were five countries 
that I actually traveled to. Um, they were very diverse, um, everywhere from Spain to Kenya to Canada to Brazil. Um, but but um, yeah, I covered a lot more territory with my question. I was more interested in in covering the globe than in um, you know sheer numbers. You know, I was, I was putting on my scientist hat, but I'm not really a scientist, so probably you know I couldn't have had a peer reviewed. Uh, paper produced from what I did, but, uh, but still, you know, I, de- I definitely found consistent patterns uh, in, in the data I, I was able to collect. Okay. So the follow-up question is obviously uh, none of the listeners are going to be elites. So why, I mean, why would you think this then works for the everyday person? Uh, you touched upon it, but uh, what, uh, how do you base it? Yeah. That? So, you know, there's a tendency to assume that elite endurance athletes are, not even human, like there's some species, they're from outer space. And that's absurd. You know, they're, they're, they're human, just like us. So the real question is, why wouldn't what works for them also apply to us? Um, yeah, I mean, I understand there, there are some genetic differences, uh, but general genetic differences between, you know, elite performers and everyone else. But p- most people don't know anything about you know, genetics and, and people would be surprised to learn how few there are. First of all, you could take 10 elite endurance athletes and they don't have the same genes. There are a million different ways to be a world-class endurance athlete. There's not one genetic recipe for that. So they're just as diverse among themselves as we are. And by and large, you know, the the things that distinguish them from us are things like speed. They're just born with a lot of speed. <laughs> They're fast. Um, it has nothing to do with how we um, digest and metabolize food and, and nutrients. And so, you know, researchers have looked at that. They're trying to find the genes that are required to become an elite endurance athlete. And they found a few, but they have absolutely nothing to do with food. Nothing. So we are the same okay. as elite endurance athletes. Um, so we should, you know, whatever works best for them. Obviously, the, the calories will be different. We, you know, you know, if you're if you're training 30 hours a week, you're burning a lot of calories. You need to eat more calories. That's where the scaling comes in. It's the same thing with, um, like, say you're a runner and you look at an elite marathoner, and that person runs, you know, 160, 170 kilometers per week. Training like the elites doesn't mean running exactly that amount. It means running a lot relative to your limits. So, you know, don't get caught up in the details. It's the principles that matter. And in in the endurance athlete, I focus on the principles, you know. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. Uh, So let's just quickly go through the five core habits as uh, you have outlined in the book, right? So first one is eat everything. I mean, does this this mean that... uh, all kinds of diets are now uh, out of the window. Or, I mean, what, what, what do you mean by that? Eat everything. Yeah, so well, you know, I guess perhaps the most striking pattern I found in the diets of elite endurance athletes is that they, um, their diets are very inclusive and well-rounded. They eat all types of food, all categories of food. And not just that, they go out of their way to make sure that they check all the boxes in terms because no two different categories of food have the same nutrient profile. So if you look at many of the popular fad diets, they're all about what you don't eat, you know, 
eliminate this, avoid that. They do exactly the opposite. Uh, and they want to make sure because, you know, endurance training, you're putting a lot of stress on your body. And um, if, if you don't have a good, solid, well-rounded uh, nutritional foundation to be able to absorb that stress, you could run in, you're going to have a weak link somewhere. So one of the things I found uh, that was kind of interesting, which embodies this idea of eating everything is a lot of the elite athletes I, I spent time with would include eat meals that combined an absurd variety of ingredients that like one pot meals or like breakfast bowls where foods would be combined that you wouldn't necessarily think to put together like oatmeal and a fried egg and avocado oil and peanut butter and dried fruit and fresh fruit. And it's, you know, all over the maps, like just even individual meals sometimes included all kinds of varieties. So that's the first pattern I identified. So but you mean they do this quite deliberately? Yes. They seek out to get variety into their ear in eating. Yeah, it's a completely different orientation. You know, we've been we've been trained in the general population to think in terms of, okay, if I want to improve my diet, what do I stop eating? What do I avoid? And and I'm saying they have a very different mindset. It's their their mindset is, what am I missing? Uh, what can I add to my diet to make sure it's very well rounded? Got it. Okay. Uh, the second one you talk about is eat uh, quality. What does that mean? Right. So if my book only focused on that one, that first uh, habit, eat everything, you might think, okay, anything goes, right? <laughs> like there are no rules. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the elite endurance athletes, they do have very high standards for their diet, but they don't apply that through elimination or avoidance. They apply it, apply it in terms of quality. Um in the general population, we tend to think of quality in terms of like a high quality cut of meat versus a low quality cut of meat. That's But nutritional scientists, that's not what it means for them. Quality is simply defined as uh, the broad health outcomes that are associated with eating a certain type of food. So nutritional epidemiologists will look at a population of tens of thousands of people and they will they will look at specific categories of food and how often individuals within that large population eat a certain type of food. And then they will look at health outcomes such as uh, heart disease risk or cancer risk or obesity prevalence. And they'll try to connect, um, if you eat more of this food, do you have a lower risk of this disease or a higher risk of this disease? And quality is simply defined as, it doesn't matter what, what, the food is made of it's it's the outcomes what what does eating more or less of this food do to your health so a high quality food by the scientific definition is simply a type of food that is associated with good health outcomes and a low quality food is a type of food that's associated with bad health outcomes so so can you talk a little bit of the diet quality score which you have created uh, for the listeners? Uh, I will obviously link it also in the show notes uh, if people want to download that app. I found it personally very, very useful to use that. So can you just give us a, a couple of minutes on that, sure. please? Yeah. So the, the scientists, they've come up with, you know, through this research, and there's been a lot of it that, that's been done, they've come up with various indices, Um for scoring the quality of a person's diet. Um, one that's pretty well known is uh, the Mediterranean diet score. Uh, that like, th that's a certain type of diet that's based on this concept of quality. 
And you could either eat more like that or less like that. And, and scientists will apply a score based on how close you are to adhering to the standards of a Mediterranean diet. So scientists use these tools all the time, but athletes aren't scientists. So I wanted to create a tool that was easy for just everyday athletes to use. And that's what my diet quality score is. So it's, it's exactly the same concept that the scientists are using but just simplified, made practical. Um, so I, you know, I describe it and I tell you how to, I walk you through the scoring process in my book, but I also developed uh, a smartphone app, uh, the DQS diet quality score app uh, that makes it, it, it's similar to, um, you know, food logging or calorie counting, but actually easier. You're just categorizing what you've eaten by food type. So, you know, if you eat an apple, you score that as a serving of fruit. You don't have to say apple. It's just fruit. Everything is scored by category, by food type. Got it. Okay. Uh, so moving on, yeah, the third principle you talk about it is eat carb-centered, which again, a lot of uh, you know, athletes uh, have this notion that uh, carbs are not good so but you seem to be saying the opposite you said eat carb centered yeah and again you know um yeah i know carbohydrate is it's a controversial uh, nutrient um but in in researching my book i was simply observing i was looking at um you know i was i was being objective and and looking at what these athletes actually do and this is what they do. You know, elite endurance athletes all over the world eat a carbohydrate-centered diet. Now, I use that term calculatedly, carbohydrate-centered instead of high-carbohydrate, because that's really what I mean. Uh, some athletes, for example, the professional cyclists I spent time with in Spain, they didn't always eat a high carbohydrate diet. If they had a recovery day, for example, when they weren't uh, burning a lot of calories, they might eat low carbohydrate or they might do specific workouts in a low carbohydrate state in order to get a particular training effect. Um, but their everyday baseline diet would be carbohydrate centered, which essentially just means that if you look at any given meal or snack they're eating, there's some high-quality, carbohydrate-rich food at the center of it. And the, the food's different. Um, you know, in Kenya, it's ugali, which is this kind of national dish. It's like a cornmeal porridge type of thing. Uh, the Dutch cyclists I was with, it's bread for them mostly. Uh, the Japanese runners I spent time with, it's rice for them. Um, but, yeah, that's what it means to eat carbohydrate-centered. And, yeah, this is – in so many ways, what the professionals do is very different from what the rest of us do. And I'm, I'm actually, my mission in both in training, diet, and psychology is to close those gaps. Because uh, I really do believe we're all human and we, and we do, we will do best to emulate the, the pros. No, absolutely. Uh, as I said in the beginning, uh, a lot of your books uh, really help in everyday, everyday athletes like myself, for example, right? So moving on, the last two principles, the, this one is eat enough. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so the, those first three rules really focus on, um, you know, what, what you eat. And uh, the fourth, eat enough, is focused on how much you eat, uh, which is obviously common sense says that's important too. And again, this is an area where in the general population, um, you know, especially in, in 
it might be less the case in India than it is in the United States, but um, overeating is a big problem in the United States. Um, you know, overweight and obesity are, are big problems. So we're, we're trained to think of eating too much as the the risky thing, and we we think less about not eating enough. But for and and endurance athletes are we get the same training because we live in the same society. But endurance athletes are different because again we're putting uh, a lot of stress on our bodies through our training, and you know if you if you eat too much as an endurance athlete, it's actually the consequences aren't as bad as if you don't eat enough. Um, as an endurance athlete, if you eat too much, the biggest consequence is that you carrying around a little extra weight, which is definitely harmful to performance. But if you don't eat enough and you continue to put your body through the stress of training, your injury risk goes up. Uh, you won't adapt to the training you do as well. Your recovery is um, compromised. Uh, you know, you're more likely to get sick. You're more likely to develop overtraining syndrome. So it's actually, you really want to avoid not eating enough more than you want to avoid eating too much. Of course, what you really want to do is hit the sweet spot and eat, you know, the right amount. And that's actually easier to do than a lot of people think. You don't have to calculate calories or, or any of that stuff. I mean, you can, but the, the elite athletes generally don't, don't do that. They just learn how to listen to their body and let their body tell them how much food they need. Uh, there is this saying, right? It's better to be at the start line, a little overweight and undertrained rather than overtrained and underweight, yes. yes. because uh, that that probably will not even get you to the starting exactly. line. Uh, that, that's good. And the last point is eat individually. What, what, what do you mean by that? Right. So again, we could we could group the first four rules together. That they're all kind of what's one size fits all rules. The rules that. Um, everyone should follow who, who wants to uh, maximize the potential benefit of diet on fitness and performance. But, you know, I've em emphasized up to this point that we're all human, um, but we are also all unique. Uh, we are, um, we are individuals. So um, the first four rules give you a starting point. Um, I like to think of them as creating a space that you need to operate within sort of boundaries for your diet, those are the rules you can't get away with breaking. But there's a lot of room for individuality within that space. And so we don't all have to eat exactly the same way. In fact, we shouldn't. Um, I'm not only talking about individual metabolism and physiology. So you might have a food intolerance. So there's a certain type of food that when you eat it, you don't feel good. Well, then you need to avoid that food. Um, there are definitely differences in terms of um, some athletes definitely thrive on less carbohydrate than, than others do. And so you, the first four rules give you a starting point, but then there is a, a certain amount of responsibility on the individual athlete to find what works best for him or her. And also things like um, culture, individual preferences need to be factored, uh, values, ethics, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into the, the decisions of, of what you eat. And whereas a lot of the, the fad diet gurus just they have one diet for everyone and they don't care what you like, what you're used to. They say, start over and eat this way. I don't believe in, in doing that. When I work with someone on improving their diet, 
I try to keep as much of what they're doing as possible and only make the, the necessary changes to get results they want, because presumably you eat the way you do for a reason. And it will be easier to sustain whatever diet you end up with if it is mostly based on your preferences, your lifestyle, your culture. Um, and then the changes are just strictly targeted at uh, gaining the, the results that you seek. So uh, basically, you are not coming from a, uh, from any dogma. You don't have any particular bias. All you are saying is that you look at what works. And as long as it works, you don't have an ideological bias uh, on any which way. That's that that's great. So in the book, you have classified food into 10 groups uh, from the highest quality to the lowest quality. Uh, just take us through the thought process uh, of, uh, of that. Yeah, so... Um... You know, I point out uh, when I present this material in the book that, you know, people could certainly quibble about my the, the, the way I order the different food types. And I'm not all that concerned about it. It's it's the it's the broad contours of the ranking that matter most. So, you know, the highest quality food type in, in my my ranking uh, is vegetable and whether you think that's actually truly the highest quality food type or not, everyone agrees it's a high quality food type and everyone should eat a lot of vegetables. And I don't know, like, it's my lowest quality food type, fried food, probably. There's a few that are scored the same in the low quality category, but things like sweets and, and, and fried foods are, you could argue about which one is uh, worst, you know, sweets or, or fried foods, but I think everyone would agree that they're, not good for you. And the science is absolutely definitive on, on, on that subject. So, yeah, so I, and you can also uh, argue about exactly how I categorize the food, you know, there, but, but it, it, it's just meant to be a useful heuristic tool uh, because one of the problems is that people, and there's research showing this too, people tend to think their diet is better than it is. So the, the, the main, the first, the first benefit you get from using the diet quality score tool is just to have an objective look at, 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 at what your diet, how good your diet actually is. Um, because it's generally not as good as you think it is. Uh, no, so for, so for example, I remember that not as 10, I remember it as three groups. So uh, let's say highest quality, which in my mind is basically what you have said at the top three in your list, which is fruits, vegetable, and nuts and seeds. And then the middle category, which is whole grains, dairy, and unprocessed uh, seafood and meat. And then the rest of it, which is uh, refined grains, sweets, processed meat, and fried food. So it's just easy to remember right. that way. And as you said, really doesn't matter whether vegetables are ahead of fruits or the other way around. Yeah. I mean, we all agree that these are all high quality things that you should yeah. have. So did this also go into the diet quality score app, uh, this classification? Do you use that? Well, yeah, it's, it's, everything is, is categorized based on those 10 types. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Um, okay. And I mean, you could break it down by point values because I mean, that that's really what we're talking about. So, um, you know, your first serving of fruit or vegetables in the day is you get two points for that. So in terms of the scoring, it doesn't even matter whether it's fruit or vegetables. You know, they're, they're not the same. But, uh, you know, when it gets down to the qualitative side, um, they are the same. But it does, you know, it's worth pointing out that there is nuance to it. So you don't get the same number of points 
every time you eat a given category of food throughout the day. And that just reflects the idea that there's such a thing as getting enough vegetables, right? Like your, your 20th serving of vegetables <laughs> in a day is not necessarily doing you more good than your, your, your 19th. Um, yeah. Understood. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on supplements? What works? What does not what are the fads you are coming across? Yeah. Supplements. You know, just personally, um, you know, sometimes I think the best way to answer these questions, because I care very much about my own athletic performance, right? So um, I will, if, if a supplement, uh, there's some people who are just categorically anti-supplement or pro-supplement. Uh, I'm, again, a pragmatist. So um, if I think, uh, so I treat supplements individually, not they're all good or they're all bad. Um, and what I've generally found is that in, in, for endurance athletes, the supplements that, that are worth, um, considering are the ones that are focused on health. Um, personally, I have yet to identify a supplement that is strictly for performance enhancement that is worth taking regularly. Um, you know, it's, you know, there's all kinds of research because there's money to be made right off supplements. So there are there have been promising candidates. Like I remember, there was a lot of hype around resveratrol, which is a it's an uh, antioxidant that's in red wine. And there was some early research. It all you know starts with mice, and it it, it made them super exercisers. And so there all suddenly there was an explosion of uh, resveratrol supplements, and a lot of endurance athletes were taking them. Well, turns out subsequent research found that. It's not really that beneficial, or you just have to take insane amounts of, of resveratrol to get a benefit. And that happens over and over and over with the performance-oriented supplements. But ones that are more focused on health, um, like iron. So, so for example, uh, give us some examples. Iron is one. Iron is a, a common okay. uh, nutrient deficiency in endurance athletes, and especially in runners. And there's a specific reason for it, uh, which is that uh, running because of its high impact nature causes a pretty strong inflammatory response, even compared to non-impact endurance activities like cycling. And part of that inflammatory response involves your body producing a hormone called hepcidin. And it's good. You want your body to produce that hormone because it helps manage inflammation. But when, when you have high levels of hepcidin in your bloodstream, you don't absorb iron from food. So a runner who has who gets enough iron actually isn't absorbing as much iron as a non-runner who take who gets exactly the same amount of iron, and that's why uh, iron deficiency anemia uh, is very very common in, in runners. So um, I discovered uh, uh, to my surprise that I I was low in iron, so I started taking a supplement. So you know iron is toxic <laughs> if you have too much of it. So you that's one of the things that you would want to get tested. Uh, which I did, and just find out if you're low. If you're not low, you don't want to supplement. But if you are, you do. And I, I noticed I just felt better immediately when I went on an iron supplement. So that's one. Uh, what about things like vitamin D3, for example? A lot of people uh, these days uh, turn up to be deficient. Uh, do, do you recommend that as yep. well? Uh, that, that's, that's another one, um, especially people with... Uh, who live in um, high latitude cli uh, climates where you have, you know, longer winters when there's less sunlight, when it's colder, uh, you know, cause obviously sunlight is the best source for 
for vitamin D, your, you know, your body makes it. Um, it's not really a food nutrient. It's a nutrient your body makes. But uh, people who live in, you know, the extreme, extreme latitudes and also people with fairer skin like me are, are or I'm sorry, uh, darker skin are more likely um, to become deficient. Um, so that's, that's another one. Like, it's not going to harm you to take vitamin D3 uh, prophylactically just to take it every day. Um, but it's another thing that you can get tested on to see if you're deficient. And it's also one of those things that might fluctuate seasonally. So in the summer, when there's lots of sun and you're outdoors, you might not be deficient in the winter when it's cold and the days are shorter, you might be deficient. Uh, what about beetroot? Beetroot has been, uh, uh, getting a lot of uh, attention of late, yep. uh, uh, and that leads to my the next question, not just on beetroot. The endurance diet book was published about four years back. Uh, have you seen any changes in the overall conclusions in the endurance diet uh, book? Uh, are there anything new that you want to highlight yeah. uh, regarding this topic? Yeah, so beetroot is one of those supplements that is more in the performance en- enhancement uh, side. And it is actually one that I take. It's really, it's it's dietary nitrate. So it's not beetroot itself. It's that nutrient that's in it um, that has been, it increases blood flow. Uh, well, it increases um, vasodilation. So you, it opens up your blood vessels and increases blood flow. And you can see how that might be beneficial to uh, endurance performance. You know, the research is all over the place on that. Um, and so that's the type of supplement that you could simply take in the lead up to an important race for example. So you kind of load up on nitrate before an important race. Um, uh, but it also can help, it could potentially help with some of your tougher workouts, um, especially shorter, faster type of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I do take that one as a matter of fact, and it is more performance oriented uh, in terms of is, is, has my book become dated in, in any way? The, what, you know, the first thing I think of when you ask that question is, um, I've definitely, my practices in terms of uh, carbohydrate depleted training um, have evolved since that book came out. I do touch on that topic in the book, um, but there's some interesting, it's a fertile area of research. So you have more athletes who are on a carbohydrate centered based diet who are selectively um, depriving themselves of carbohydrate uh, in, 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 you know, in particular circumstances in order to, it's similar to altitude training or heat training where you sort of intentionally make things harder for yourself um, in order to actually increase the stress of exercise in a targeted way in order to get a benefit uh, out of it. So, you know, if I could uh, do a, a second edition of endurance diet, I would go a little bit deeper into that topic for sure. Okay. This, by this, you basically mean, uh, 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 occasional workout which you do without uh, having taken any carbohydrate before the workout. Let's say, let's say a twenty kilometer or a twenty-five kilometer run, and you just have water um, uh, in the morning and not. Uh, th- that's what you mean by yep. carb-depleted uh, training sessions, right? Yeah, that's that's the most basic okay. way to to do it. And yeah, the but they're they're slightly more sophisticated and, and nuanced ways of of practicing. You know carbohydrate modulation you, you can also i mean there is that practice that i referred to before of like you know doing low carb uh rest days um uh, that that sort of thing um like a short low carb phase when you're maybe focused on weight cutting versus uh building fitness 
So that's definitely, um, I, I can't pretend that all the dust is settled. Uh, there's a lot of new research and elite athletes who I always, you know, I look at what they're doing. They're playing around with different protocols. Um, but yeah, my own practices have definitely evolved in, in that realm. Got it. Okay. Uh, so can you uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the new book, Running the Dream? What can we expect in that? Yeah. So uh, it should be clear by now that I, 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 I pay a lot of attention to the best athletes in the world, partly because I think they have a lot to teach us and partly because um, I admire them. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of the sport and um you know, I was never, I'm 49 years old, so I'm, I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I was never, even when I was a, a, a younger athlete, I was not elite myself. Um, above average for sure, but not elite. But everyone who develops a, a great passion for running or another endurance sport, I think they, they fantasize about, you know, what would it be like if I could, you know, have a shoe contract with Nike or Saucony or whatever and, and just go all the way with this sport. Um, or just, you know, however, whatever amount of talent you were born with, just, you know, how good could I be if I could take a summer off from work um, and have a great coach and work and get a massage every week, uh, you know, just do everything that the pros do. So, you know, I was in a position where I could actually do it. Um, so uh, this is three summers ago in 2017. I, I, um, reloc I live in California, but I relocated to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is um, it's sort of a, a mecca of, uh, of running in the U.S. It's high altitude. Um, and I, I spent the entire summer living and training with a team of professional runners there. So for, for 13 weeks, I was doing absolutely everything the pros do um, to in, in, in search of better fitness and performance. But I was 46 years old at the time. And again, I was never elite even when I was younger. So I wasn't at all competitive with, you know, the young gifted athletes who were my teammates during that time. But I was just living out a fantasy, really. But also I was testing my conviction that the things that the pros do can benefit, you know, everyday folks like us. So I wanted to um, kind of, uh, put my money where my mouth is, as they say, and see if, if I would actually uh, benefit from doing all these things. So the book basically chronicles that uh, journey. Yes. And it all, all culminated in the Chicago Marathon. You know, it was, obviously I had to test it somehow, right? Um, and yeah, so I ran the Chicago Marathon and I was, uh, the agent for the team I was with pulled some strings and I was able to compete in the professional division. So the Chicago Marathon is, it has 40,000 participants. There are only 48 male and female runners combined who are given elite bibs, you know, who start right up in front. And I was one of them. <laughs> and definitely not because I belong there, but it was just an absolutely amazing experience. So it's just fun if, you know, if, if you're a passionate runner and you wonder what it would be like, um, because I think you, runners can, other runners can relate to me more than, than they can relate to someone who, was just born with a ton of talent and started winning from the very beginning. You know, there are professional runners, great runners who've written their own story, but I think when you see it through my eyes, I'm doing what they do, but I'm just like you. Um, it, it's kind of a different uh, window into that life.
Yeah, I, I ran the Chicago Marathon last year. In fact, that was my pretty much my last race. I don't think anything is happening now this year. So uh, quite enjoyed it. It's a fantastic race. And we had a great uh, weather that day. So, no, you know, I also ran my personal best, best in Chicago last year. Yeah. So I also had followed uh, your blog, The Running Bum, when you right. were, uh, do a do, uh, training in flank stuff and for listeners i also would i would strongly recommend you to listen to matt's uh, interview on final surge i will put a link in the show notes uh, he talks uh, in that show along with his coach ben rosario so it's quite an engaging uh, episode uh, so and then the book book will be coming out in july is that correct? Uh, the book is already out at least in uh, here in the u.s it's, it's already out yeah so uh, that's that's fantastic uh, matt so this concludes part one of the interview with Matt. I highly recommend listening to part two as well, where we cover the 80-20 training principles and have our fun quiz segment. And Matt gives some recommendations on some resources that he uses. 